Hi, I'm Frank Daly and welcome to That Sounds Interesting podcast. Today my guest is Elizabeth Malika Salaveri. She's a writer and a member of the Lisbon Writers Group. She grew up in Peru and moved to Mexico and then to the United Arab Emirates for 20 years and most recently to Lisbon. She's currently working on a novel which we'll discuss a little bit later on. So welcome Elizabeth to my podcast today. Thank you very much, Frank, for inviting me to the podcast. Okay, so maybe we can start a little bit with your background in Peru, and then we'll move on to the other places that you lived, and then we can discuss a little bit about writing them. Okay. So uh, tell me a little bit about Peru. Peru is a wonderful country in which I was born. And I would like to tell a little bit about my family background. Okay, I am the daughter of an army officer and also my grandfather was in the army. So there is a tradition about uh, the army. We really think, my siblings and I, because I have two, one brother, one sister, we are part of that big family. And um, because of that, I think um, I learned to be flexible when it comes to learning about new cultures and I learn to appreciate or to notice the differences of how people live in different cities. Because of my father's job, he was posted in different cities. So I lived in Piura, which is a city in the north part of Peru. I lived in Lima, the capital. I live in Arequipa, which is a big city in the south part of Peru. And I live in Tangna, which is a city on the border with uh, Chile. Through living in these cities, I learned many different things about Peru, about food, about different types of personalities of Peruvians, depending uh, where they were born. And um, I also became interested in history. Since, since I was a child, the courses that I liked, the course that I liked the most was always history. Uh, you can kind of understand it a bit more, I guess, if, if you understand the history of it. Yes, I, I, I think so. I, I, I agree. I cannot uh, think of a moment in history right now that can make us reflect. But uh, definitely I believe that, and unfortunately sometimes, history repeats. <laughs> So, um, and when you were growing up, I know you told me uh, when we were talking earlier on about a, an incident when, was it about your father when he was nine? Yes. And about uh, his godfather. <laughs> yes, that was interesting. Um, my father was baptized not a very early age. He was baptized when he was nearly nine years old. Uh, when he came to know about this, that he was going to be baptized, he asked my grandparents that he wanted his neighbor to be his godfather. But who was this guy? This guy was a Jewish guy <laughs> walking on a house next to my grandparents. And of course, my grandparents uh, didn't agree. And I guess up to now, it's technically impossible because, um, but my father, uh, well, he was, a, he was a, uh, a boy, he was a child, and he was marveled by the fact that 
to that house, the neighbor house, people were coming to sell metal scraps and people were also coming to buy metal scraps. So the wanted uh, the godfather, the supposed to be godfather, was a businessman and my father once wanted to be part of his family, wanted to, or wanted to integrate that guy to his family. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great idea and for a nine-year-old to think that, hey, this is a very wealthy guy that's living next door. Uh, you know, he didn't know what, well, maybe he did know if he was Jewish or not, yeah. but, but he just knew that uh, he was wealthy and if he was his godfather that, that some of that wealth would get transferred. Yeah, so, I think so, yeah. So, I think, so um, your parents obviously didn't agree, I guess. No, already. they didn't agree. I, I cannot imagine the face of my grandmother when my father asked, like, I want the Jewish guy next door to be my, my godfather because my grandmother was religious. Uh, I'm a Catholic, she, is, she was Catholic, right. but she was religious. She would go to Mass every Sunday. <laughs> You lived in Peru for until you, you know, for quite a long time. Yes, I lived there until I was 30 years old. Uh, in between, I lived one year and a half in Mexico, uh, around 1996. And so, um, just tell me a little bit about Mexico then. Um, Mexico was a very exciting country for me because Mexico is a, is like Brazil, is a huge country compared to Peru. And there were various things that uh, surprised me over there. One, the amount of tourism over there compared to the one I could see in Peru, the hotel infrastructure, uh, the traffic, traffic jams. The traffic jams in Mexico are really horrible. But I also learned about uh, history. Um, I remember that one day I went to a talk in the uh, main museum in Mexico City. The talk was given by the um, director of the museum. And during the talk, the director was explaining that uh, at the Aztec times, um, they played a version of their own soccer. <laughs> so, uh, the guys would uh, be, let's say, would be chosen, okay? And it was not the soccer like nowadays, it was guy against guy, so there were no teams. So various guys playing against each other. And the winner would be himself a prize. He would not receive a prize, he would be himself a prize. He would be offered to the gods. The guy would be taken to the top of one of the pyramids and the priest would cut his chest with a very sh sharp blade in a one single stroke. The director of the museum explained to us that the priests were experts doing this. It had to be a, a stroke done very fast and a very accurate. And so, when I heard this, when I was at the museum, I was shocked. And, and this, what this era, when was this actually, when the, that sacrifice was, I guess it was a sacrifice. Yeah, it was a sacrifice, yes. And uh, this was in Mexico, of course, before the Spanish conquest. 
Okay, okay. I guess a good long time ago. A long, oh yes, a long, long time ago, yes. But yes, it, it's a very interesting museum. Mexico has a very interesting uh, story. Um, the Mayas, the Aztecs, and some aspects are very similar to the cultures that we have in Peru. Um, historians or archaeologists have found uh, similarities okay. between cultures, like the, for example, between, uh, among the Aztecs, the pyramids that are in the Chichen Itza, some of the constructions that the Incas built up uh, in Cusco, and um, at the time of the pharaohs in Egypt. <laughs> so you were in Mexico City for about a year and a half, I think you said, and uh, then was that a project, like it was a contract, or was it an internship? I went for a study there. I was studying marketing. Yes, I was studying marketing, and uh, I tried to uh, learn as much as I could about Mexico. Yes. Of course, and of course, you were speaking Spanish again, and there wasn't any issues from a Spanish point of view because you were going from one Spanish-speaking country to another Spanish-speaking country. Uh, well, in general, Spanish speakers, we don't have a problem to communicate among us, but definitely there are some differences uh, among us. Like uh, in Mexico, um, they refer to the car as coche. In Peru, we say carro. And, uh, and this is funny now I'm remembering that uh, one Spanish friend of mine in Dubai, once she told me, in Peru or in some Latin American countries, you say carro because you are given the Spanish, um, the Spanish touch to the word car in English. And that happens in many languages, but it was funny because that never came to my mind by myself. <laughs> one thing that I liked a lot about Mexicans is that they keep using words in the native language. This is something that in Peru is not so common. Okay, so moving on to when you moved from Mexico then uh, uh, to the United Arab Emirates. So uh, that was a big move. Yeah, well, I went to the United Arab Emirates looking for a job. Okay, and I, it was, I think when I arrived to, to Dubai, because I arrived in Dubai, everything was different. To, a culture shock, basically. Yes, it was, I definitely, it was a culture shock, shock, and I had to adjust in order to be able to enjoy because I remember, for example, I remember the day I arrived in the airport and I just saw white and black, white and black, because the men wear white tunics, let's say, the kanduras, and the ladies wear black uh, abayas, which is like a tunic. And of course, uh, most of them wear uh, a veil that, uh, not a veil, uh, a piece of cloth um, that covers uh, their hair. So for me everything was like black and white, black and white. 
So that was a shock. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess the language. I mean, and the language also because Arabic. Uh, it's not like a Mexican Spanish, Peruvian Spanish, or Portuguese. It's completely different origin. Obviously, there's a lot of people from different countries, quite a lot of expatriates living in, in, uh, in the UAE. Was the language that you were going to be working in and, uh, 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 going to be Spanish, or was it going to be English, or was it going to be Arabic? What was the language that you used? The language that I used, uh, that everybody uses uh, uh, to work and to move around in the UAE is English. But then I had another culture shock because the English I learned was American and the English that is spoke in the UAE is British. So my ear was completely <laughs> <laughs> Crazy! Yeah. I had to adjust my ear to British English. But the thing is, it wasn't your first language. Your first language was Spanish. So now you're looking to work in a country where, even though there was lots of different languages spoken, uh, English was the main language. And and I guess you were. What were you working at? You had to work through English as well all the time. Um. I was working uh, using English, and this is a common thing. Of, of course, some uh, Arab um, people who are from Arab countries, they would speak Arabic too. But the main language, that uh, the common language that everybody uses to communicate is English. Besides, learning Arabic is not an easy thing. I try it. I really try it. Um, I lived in Dubai, but also in Abu Dhabi. When I was working in Abu Dhabi, that, I think that was the time in which I really wanted to learn Arabic because I was more exposed to Arab speakers. Abu Dhabi, contrary to Dubai at the time, we're talking about 2010 more or less, uh, was the population was mainly Arabs. The expats from the Western countries were less in percentage. So, I, for example, I remember once an Emirati um, walked into the showroom in which I was working, showroom of building materials, and he asked me if I spoke Arabic. So I said, Mafi Arabi. Mafi Arabi, it's a sentence that foreigners who do not speak Arabic usually used to say, I don't speak Arabic. Yeah. Mafi, which means nothing, yeah. Arabi, Arabic. So the emperatic guy looked at me and said, you cannot talk like that. And I said, why, what's wrong? That is broken, in, broken Arabic. The, the same you say broken English, that is broken Arabic. So the Emirati guy was so kind, he took it and he said, I will teach you how to say it in the correct way. And up to now, I think I remember, let me try. Ah, Anamatikala Arabi. <laughs> okay, so that, that was the... The proper Arabic, yeah. And he made me repeat the sentence like three times. We had a chat what he needed to, um, to redo his, his house. We look around some materials and after that he asked me again, so how was it? How did you say it? 
That was good though. He, yeah. he was making sure that you had learned it well. And and you you mentioned that you worked in a construction a construction materials company. Yes. And did you work in like that for the for the full time you were in the the UAE? For most of the time, I was like for fourteen years. Yes, it was an industry I would have never thought I would ended up uh, working it, but. I, it turned out that it was an uh, um, interesting industry and I think because I'm also, I also like to read about painting and architecture, I enjoy it somehow. Yes. Okay, I guess you enjoyed the cultural aspects of, of, yes. of the culture you were living in then, which was so different from what you had come from in Peru. Yes, I think the, somehow it created a link. Because as, I'm, uh, as I was saying the moment ago, the day I arrived into the UAE uh, to see almost everything black and white was a big shock. Okay, obviously a surprise, but later on, like through the years, like uh, going there, going over there, like moving around the city, talking to people, whether Westerns or Eastern and Emiratis, uh, I came to know the culture and I really have to say that they have a very interesting and nice culture, Kaliji culture, how they call it, Emirati culture. I, mm -hmm. I guess, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on, that probably had some influence on the writing that you're actually... Um... Yes, yes, it, it has, it has, definitely it has, and I think it will be unavoidable uh, uh, to reflect that in my writing. I, I feel very lucky, very privileged to have been invited to, uh, for Ramadan celebrations through, uh, to, a, um, to a house of Emiratis. Uh, and I celebrate Ramadan with this, with this Emirati family various times. So little by little, and, I came to understand their culture and I came to learn their traditions. Um, let me give you an example, like uh, in one of these many um, invitations, let's say, I happened to have the, um, the tea, the teapot next to me. So someone asked for tea. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll pour the tea in your cup. So I grabbed the teapot and then the lady looked at me and she said, no, 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 halas, halas, not that hand. And I said, why was wrong? It's your left hand. You cannot serve, oh, yes. serve anything with your left hand. You have to do it with your right hand. Yeah. And um, I think this is very obvious in, uh, in, uh, Asian cultures or Eastern cultures, but at that time, that little detail just escaped out of my mind. Didn't come to my mind. I didn't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a, it was a whole thing. Everybody was looking at me. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, you, you can only use your right hand in any yes. situation uh, mm -hmm. uh, for for um, for good reason. Yes. When you were living in the UAE, maybe you can talk a little bit about deciding to move from the UAE to Lisbon. 
I can say that uh, some years ago I had already started thinking about leaving the UAE. Um, so when the and I started to learn uh, Portuguese by myself. I used YouTube to learn Portuguese. I was watching so operas, uh, Brazilian productions. Um, two of the soap operas that I was watching to learn Portuguese were related to Middle Eastern culture. One of the soap operas was about Moroccan immigrants in Brazil. The other soap opera was a Turkish, a Turkish one. When you came to uh, Portugal, when you came to Lisbon, um, the Portuguese that you'd learned was a little different than the, than the Portuguese that's spoken here. Yes, it was a little different. <laughs> Definitely it was. I was aware that the Portuguese spoken in Portugal was different from the Brazilian Portuguese. But I think I didn't realize that when I would come to Portugal, it would took me so much effort to adjust my Portuguese to the local way, let's say. Yeah. So up to now, I am adjusting my Portuguese to the way uh, Portuguese people talk. Um, somehow my Brazilian accent is dropping off. <laughs> <laughs> Not to practice, I guess, really. But, yeah. but, but that's good. And um, tell me a little bit about how you got into writing. Um, I think the story that I'm writing right now is the first one I'm creating, really. However, when my niece was six years old, seven years old, I used to walk with her on the park or near the beach. And um, somehow one day, and then it became a habit, I had to tell her stories in order to keep walking. So I was making up stories right on the spot. I cannot remember of the characters that I made up at the time, but she remembers them. <laughs> so I think one day maybe I will write those stories or put them in the paper. But you're working on a story at the moment, uh, and uh, maybe you can tell me a little, not get into detail of it, but just give me at a high level of, of uh, what era it's about and... Uh... The story which I'm writing is set in Al-Andalus time. It's the period in which the Iberian Peninsula was ruled by Muslims. So Andalus then is, is a bigger than just Andalusia? Yes, yes. Andalusia is a specific place in Spain. Al-Andalus included part of Portugal, especially south, and part of Spain. Okay, and from, the, from 900 to 1300? From 900 until 1400, more or less, yes. Okay, so, so this kind of Muslim kingdom that existed there, I, I guess you were influenced a bit by living in, in the Middle East for a while and understanding some culture, some of their culture, and then then looking at the history, did you do? Have you been doing research to try and understand that period? Yes, I've been. What you were uh, hinting, it's it's uh, it's correct. Definitely, my stay in the UAE has 
influenced me to write about um, Muslim culture, if you could say it. And uh, yes, I have done, um, until now, I'm doing uh, a research about Al-Andalus, the way people lived at the time. I have read, um, I have read um, studies, I have read text uh, online about, for example, how the education system was, like what was the role of women at the time, um, how normal people lived, because in history what we learned most of the time is how the upper classes lived. We know who is the king, we know who was the queen and the princess and the royals. But we don't really, most of the times, we don't know how people on, let's say, the medium social class or low social class lived or interact. Of course, it is a very valid uh, a point, I, I think. It's because um, the people who wrote about those times always wrote about themselves and they were typically people who yes. could afford to write uh, because they were well off. Whereas the people who lived in those lower uh, who were in those lower classes of of society, struggled a lot in just to survive. They didn't get yes. a chance to write much. Yes, I and, at all. yes, and I guess that happened uh, in all cultures at all times, even now. And um, talking about Al-Andalus and the education system, for example. One thing that I discovered during my research is that there were women who knew how to write, how to recite poetry, and that they, some of them, because they were so good at writing, so good in how to use words to communicate properly, that there were some that were assistants to the emirs. They would write letters that the mayor would sign. So they, some of them had a really important role in society. And when we talk about um, women or girls from lower social class, how would they attain education? Well, there were women for the upper class who would voluntarily give uh, um, give classes to them, they would act as teachers. So that is very interesting to me because uh, it was a way to educate um, in a very philanthropic way, you could say. Of course, yes, indeed. In, in fact, in, if, if you look back historically across Europe or across other countries, uh, other cultures, you'll find that um, often uh, people who were in lower classes didn't actually uh, get educated at all. They struggled just to survive and they were lucky. But there were always some people who managed to actually rise above where they were and learn and, uh, and found a way to learn. But it was a small number of people compared to, to people who, like mostly people who were educated were, were uh, wealthy people. Yes, yes, def definitely the, the percentage was less and uh, uh, like nowadays, for example, in let's, um, poor families, let's say, 
if a child has to help the father, uh, the father would prefer the child to help him to have more income rather than to send him to the school or you know those kind of situations in which the child somehow cannot focus on uh, cannot have a life of a student, right? But that's true often in, in agricultural yes. uh, uh, types of societies, you at that, yes. where as soon as the uh, uh, children were at a stage where they could actually work and do the farm work, they did that rather than actually do any education. Mm -hmm. Their education stopped, well, maybe their formal education stopped. It just wasn't always the case, but it, it, was, it was very common. So, um, just moving on for a little bit about the Lisbon Writers Group, which you're a member of, and which I'm also a member of. Yes, <laughs> the Lisbon Writing Group is amazing. <laughs> uh, it's true, it's amazing. Um, with the Lisbon Writing Group, I have developed my writing skills, definitely. Otherwise, I would not have come up with this story. <laughs> well, actually, isn't it a nice idea that where you can have a social activity, chatting for a while, and then uh, do some writing, and then if you want to, you can share it, and uh, it's quite nice. And then you get to hear what people are writing each week and continue on. Week by week, you hear different stories being developed. Yes, it's it's really nice dynamic. But to be honest, uh, I was absolutely nervous the first time I read something that I wrote. I was absolutely nervous and shy until now. But I guess uh, as of as of now, I am like more relaxed, <laughs> and and the guys are wonderful. I mean, because they find a way to give suggestions or even to criticize, let's say, but in a very positive way. Generally, it's very positive uh, um, feedback that you tend to get, which is good. It's encouraging from a writer's perspective, actually, to get that. Okay, so um, your writing plans for this story that you're working on, what are you planning for the story. I know I've heard, I've read, I've heard a little bit that you've read, read, yeah. read out at the writers group, but are you writing more on, on a regular basis or are you planning to expand it more? Mm, well, I have like scheduled to write mainly on Fridays and Saturdays and my story, I, I, when I began writing about this character, uh, I thought it was going to be a, a story of maximum 2,000 words. But somehow I have written so far, I was counting yesterday, like 7,000 words, like divided in three, almost four chapters. Mini, mini chapters. And it's growing every, every week. Yes, and it, it, it keeps growing, but uh, I have to put... Um, I think I have to make an outline to make an end and then maybe later on I will continue with the second part, let's say. And plus also, if you have a general idea of where it's going, you can know what to research. Because yes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you would need to understand, I guess, really, of a culture from a thousand years ago and uh, that takes time as well. Yes, there's a lot of things to learn, as you're saying, to understand. And also, 
it's impossible for me, I would like to, it's impossible for me to add everything I've come to learn about Andalus to put it in 8,000 words. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it'll, it, it's going to grow then, and I guess it's growing at the moment organically, but you're going to put some structure, I guess, at some stage. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, Elizabeth, this has been really interesting to talk to you. It's been great to have you on my podcast today, and thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much, Franca. Actually, this podcast has helped me to refresh my story. I will reflect a lot about this. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. See you then. Bye. Bye.